Welcome to the Green Majority Podcast. It is finally fall outside, and if you're in Toronto, today is the first day that feels like fall. We don't talk so much about weather today as we do about fire. We're joined by another documentary film director, and I hope you very much enjoy it. This is your quick uh, reminder as well that if you can, are willing and able to support the program, we are currently trying to expand, and uh, we need to about double our patron members. We got about 200 bucks a month. We need to get about 400 to pay a staff member uh, to actually be here. Someone. No, no one so far is paid. We don't currently uh, take wages here. Uh, but we would like to hire someone to help us produce the show and continue to do a good job. In fact, do an even better job. So if you can chip into that, go over to patreon.com, p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com slash green majority and sign up for a member. Recommended as $5. You can put in anything you like. You can put in 10, you can put in 50, you can put in 5,000, you can put in one. Whatever suits your budget, we would appreciate any and everything you can offer. Uh, beyond that, please enjoy this week's program. You're listening to The Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM. I'm your host, Saren Kaster, and I'm in studio uh, as par usual with Stefan Hossetter, who's here. Uh, we're going to be uh, uh, in reverse order. I will preview this show, today's show for you. Uh, at the end of the program, we're going to be documenting a little bit more in the ongoing tale of Canada's abusive relationship with its oil companies. Uh, today, uh, Stefan, you've really been nailing these uh, pre-show email subheadings. <laughs> uh, I'm going to take it right from Stefan, which is, oil doesn't pay, but you will. Um, so a uh, report actually comes to us as, as usual. We try and put an entertaining spin on it. The reason we have the information we're going to be telling you about today is a bit amusing. The things we learned from it are not, but we'll get to that uh, a little bit later in the middle of the program. And she's actually sitting in the studio right now, uh, Leora Eisen, who is the writer, pr producer, and director of another CBC uh, documentary, Into the Fire, uh, about uh, wildfires, uh, largely in Canada, what we've learned, and particularly its relationship to climate change to some degree, but uh, also just largely about wildfires. Uh, she also may jump in, who knows, in the beginning section. You never know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and right now, Stefan is going to take you on a journey of some gross ca uh, disaster capitalism. Uh, uh, the appearance of corruption. Uh, I didn't get as far into this news story, Stefan, so you'll have to inform me as well uh, the details here, but definitely a shady-sounding story about some contracts being issued uh, in Puerto Rico in the recovery effort. Perhaps you would answer my question right now. What what do we know about this? Yeah, so it's a it's kind of a... This is one of those examples in which, and the reason why I sort of brought it up, A, is it's, it's, it sort of answers the kind of questions I was at, we've been asking over the last few weeks uh, about Puerto Rico, which is, why is no one, why is, why is recovery there so much slower and so much more difficult, and so much, like, it's all difficult in ways because it's an island, but like, it's, the speed at which recovery has been going has been so glacial, you know, just, and, and so inadequate. You know, e today, today, 37 days, after the storm hit, 72% of Puerto Rico still is out power. That is like a third, sorry, three quarters of the, almost, of the, of the entire island nation is still out power over a month afterwards. And, and, and so I feel like we've had a running theme a little bit on the show of like, man, this is obviously bad. And why are we? Why are things not happening, right? And and, and obviously there's a there's a strain of there which is that, uh, as we mentioned last week, the the sort of powerlessness that the Puerto Ricans have within the Amer within metaphorically the and literally. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, um, and and how little recourse they have within the politics of the United States is, is certainly plays a part of it. Uh, I think you can't undermine you can't you can't ignore the fact that these are that these are that this that these are Hispanic uh, and 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 people who. Trump has consistently shown that he has, you know, at least regards dramatically less uh, than 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 a lot of the American population. Um, but this particular story uh, sort of explains how that all goes down, I guess. How how that how you take how a slow and bad response uh, and a not caring government can lead to some pretty horrendous things. And uh, it's focused around this organization called White Fish Energy. If you haven't heard about them, uh, that makes sense 
because a month ago they were a two-person organization uh, in Montana uh, that had never had a contract for for bigger than about five miles of road or of lines. Uh, somehow, there's two guys in a pickup truck. Basically, uh, like, uh, it was a little bigger than that, but not much. Uh, <laughs> you know, it was it was it was a two-person organization, literally two full-time employees and then some part-time people. Uh, and they were given, uh, uh, they also not only they only have two people, they're also only two years old. Uh, and somehow they won, uh, somehow, we'll get to how, uh, they won a no-bid contract uh, for $300 million from, Port- from the Puerto Rico uh, Electric Power Authority to repair and reconstruct parts of the island's electrical infrastructure. So, you know, it'd be, so, you know, uh, we should have bid clearly the two of us. Well, you know, there's, there's two of us. We're not full time, but we're part time. We could be a little cheaper. We could undercut this by maybe 250 million. We could, right. we could try this. Um, and and th- so there's a whole bunch of things here that are wrong. First, the no bid contract. The term no bid contract uh, is sort of like a popular phrase. Um, and sourcing this one from Wikipedia, uh, what is officially known as a sole source contract, which means basically that there's only one person or one company that can provide the contractual services needed. So any attempt to obtain bids uh, would only result in that person or the, or the company bidding on it. So basically, it's it, it's not it's not opened to a wide range of people. It's it's given to to, to one. It it also largely means that that like there's no like essentially like costs can change. This will change from detail to detail, but sometimes it means too that sort of like once you sign the agreement, you know, costs can change. That goes oh well, it turns out that you know we didn't know that this and this, and therefore it's going to be an extra fifty million, and you can't do anything about it. You just have to pay it. Well, there's yeah, there's a whole bunch of yeah. It basically you're it's you're not you're, you're really not opening it up into to actually sort of seeing uh, what all the opportunities were for people that should provide this need, and it's especially problematic. Um, and like the reason why it's being used uh, and why it's used in this is it's faster. It's you know it's faster. It moves quicker. You know it's easier to sort of get something on the ground. And so there's reasons why it would be used in this sort of scenario. However, there are some serious issues with this contract. Um, the first and so so all of this sort of has it's one of the things in which there's nothing right now that is tied down to. There's no like specific you can point to. This is corruption. This is the problem. Uh, what is true is that this very small uh, company based in Whitefish, Montana, uh, also happens to be the hometown of Interior, Secret- Interior Secretary Ryan Zinke. Uh, and he, uh, both uh, both the Interior Secretary and the Whitefish CEO, Andy Tekmansky, uh, acknowledge knowing one another. Zinke's uh, office described Whitefish as a small town of at least 6,000 people, so everyone knows everyone is sort of the idea. Didn't his kid work for them at yes. some point? Yes, his kid worked for them, yeah. He worked for some, a summer job at one of their Whitefish's construction sites, yeah. Um, and so, so if you're in a small town, you basically can't be corrupt by definition. Uh, or yeah, exactly. Or as long as as long as everything goes into yeah, you know, it's it's like the, I guess the defense there is we're a small town, so we know everyone. But mm. yeah, this is literally a three hundred million dollar contract going to a two person organization whose child, who's the interior secretary, who is not the one did not give the contract. This is was a Puerto Rico Power Authority giving the contract, obviously. However, uh, Zinke also admits that he did receive an email from Techmansky uh, before. Uh, he claims he didn't do anything with it, but again, he's already like you know, this is the, the way the Trump administration works is that it's always a slippery slope of lies until you get to the actual truth, and so, so there, so there's some serious concerns about about uh, about this already sounds a bit bad, right? And then yesterday, uh, I believe it was yesterday, the actual contract was leaked uh, because the great thing about the, the Trump White House is that everyone leaks everything. <laughs> It's the most unintentionally transparent organization in the world, right? Um, and so, the so there's, there's some particular galling facts about this. The first and most concerning for everyone should be uh, that in the actual contract, it states that in no event shall government bodies have the right to audit or review the cost and profit elements. That's the part I was talking about. Um, <laughs> Maybe this is a government contract that we have decided to to give out uh, again as quickly as possible to get this thing this thing done, um, and and yet and yet we can't review and audit it. Kind of an issue. Let's also remember that the fact that it was two percent means that they have to scale entirely. They have nothing built. This at the time Puerto Rico has sort of as somebody had denied sort of help from auxiliary areas and uh, who could help from sort of close to them and gave this contract out. But this contract was again they're so unprepared in the contract they have to literally buy helicopters. 
Like it's like they're, they're, there's 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 there's, there's, there's like forty thousand dollars being spent on helicopters in this contract. Um, each person who is get who is working there is given over three hundred dollars American per person for accommodations each day, eighty dollars per person for food each day. The supervisors on, on this job make four hundred and sixty-two dollars an hour, which translates to nine hundred thousand dollars a year. The average salary for a supervisor is like is sixty two thousand uh, dollars in the United States and forty something thousand dollars in Puerto Rico, and so sure this might be a more stressful scenario. I'm willing to accept that. Maybe you want to pay them a little bit more. Seems to me that in a place that is as cash strapped as Puerto Rico uh, is, and given the defense for this contract, it was that they didn't have the upfront cost, and so they so that that was helpful for them. Seems like you wouldn't want to pay your supervisors nine hundred thousand dollars a year uh, to do this. And the, and all of this is on the backdrop of the fact that they are they are actually doing a bad job. <laughs> like there is, it has been incredibly slow. Uh, the, the actual help has been not nearly enough. And 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 there are consistent and obvious failures going on here. And when criticized for that failure, Whitefish comes out and decides to you know, join in the fun. And starts getting in a Twitter war with with uh, with the mayor the, the the mayor of San Juan. If you're trying to pretend that you're not like a friend of Trump's, try not to tweet like Trump. Yeah, uh, and so so th- so again, so this the the mayor came out and was you know and, and criticized the sort of again the fact that they are still without power, um, and. They in the Whitefish Twitter account respond saying, "We've got 44 linemen rebuilding power lines in your city, and 40 more just arrived. Do you want us to send them back or keep working?" Which is so unbelievably rude, snide, and oh, like you can just picture whoever sent that out well, the, uh, with the power, a sneer on their face. The power isn't to run cotton candy machines; it's to run like things so that people can be alive. Like it's it's so gross. It is. The, what, I think there's one little nice good news story that I've seen this week about that, which is uh, Elon Musk mm-hmm. is putting solar batteries in a hospital and is planning to do more in Puerto Rico and has already done one. And as someone who has bought the Tesla Kool-Aid, I admit <laughs> it, uh, dr- bought and drank it, um, <laughs> I think that's great. And then that actually came from, if I'm not mistaken, unless this is a myth, but somebody tweeted, you know, why isn't Elon Musk helping to restore power with batteries? And to at Elon Musk, and he responded and said, like, good idea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I was going to, and that was actually, I was going to jump that in uh, when Stefan was mentioning the amount of power that was restored, that part of that was, is not even from these guys. Part of it's from, from donations from Tesla. Well, it's, so, and I don't know how much. I should but. note that there are three, there are two other power companies also working on this, uh, mm-hmm. but this is the far, by far the largest contract. Um, and, and, and so there, and I'm not, uh, what is good news, I guess, beyond the, beyond sort of the opportunities that exist in trying to repair it in some other ways, um, is the, is that at least people are paying attention now. Uh, to to the sort not not actually to solving the problem of course because that would be you know <laughs> we're still not going to help. That's a bridge too far. Still. Yeah, exactly. What's instead what's happening is that uh, bipartisan leaders of the House and Energy Com- uh, Commerce Panel um, are are looking into it. Uh, their their quote is it's important to develop a clear understanding of the facts. They've requested all this, a series of documents from Whitefish and asked for a briefing uh, for the committee by November 9th. Um, the and, and, and again, it's, it's it's both both signed by Democrats and Republicans. Uh, and separate from that, the House Natural Resources Chairman Bob Bishop of Utah and the Arkansas Representative of Bruce Westerman uh, of an Oversight Investigation Committee uh, asked the Puerto Rican Power Authority for all documents related to the Whitefish contract. And FEMA themselves this morning sent out a statement saying that they were not aware of this contract of how it was being written uh, and had not approved it. Uh, now, they didn't have to technically still get within the right of the Puerto Rico uh, Power Association, but uh, it does does further raise questions to the sort of difficulty of these sort of things. Mm-hmm. And in all of this, uh, to tie, ties back, and the reason why all of this is sort of what what I'm jumping into and, and why I think it's important to talk about is, is, is how we sort of open it. This, this, the concept of disaster capitalism, the concept of if these are the people who make money when, uh, are, are the ones who are going to quote unquote the helpers. You know, like there's a, I have a level of cynicism when, when, from the, you know, I think it's, I, I'm not going to misquote, uh, but, but I believe it is um, Mr. Rogers who said, always look for the helpers. 
And if the helpers are pe- are, pe- are 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 making nine hundred k while while insulting people who are actually trying to do work on the ground, and 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 not do it and, and make and go and we'll never find out how much money they made or in what way they did it because we can't we can't audit them, then then quote unquote the helpers are not enough. Uh, we need actual change. We did need you- actually something to be different. And the idea here that we can just keep waiting for disasters to happen and then make a bunch of money off it uh, is is deeply, deeply disgusting. Did you say the company name was was Whitefish or Blackwater? I guess <laughs> <laughs> some people will get that. Is yeah. the actual town the town of Whitefish where yes. that company's based? Yeah. So wasn't Whitefish? Uh, mis- I may be mistaken, but uh, wasn't it Whitefish where uh, Spencer, the alt right neo Nazi guy, uh, is from? Uh, and there were some big anti Semitic rallies. I'm not presenting a conspiracy theory or anything <laughs> right, here. Right. It's just, uh, it is a little hotbed of um, Trumpism in yeah. that town. Yeah, it was, it was the, I'm curious, which white, uh, it is, it is, it is Whitefish. Um, or at least uh, there's an uh, onslaught of anti-Semitic harassment descended upon the residents of Whitefish, a small Montana town. Yes. Uh, for taking a stand against the alt-right racist in their midst. Uh, and then came a threat of a 200-person armed march. Yes, yeah, so is fun the headline place to from be. the yeah, from, what, yeah man, what, Montana. What, what did we do before we could Google things well on air? So? Oh, uh, get things wrong all the time. I think is the answer. <laughs> well, uh, get things wrong more. <laughs> right, more often. Good point. Right. Um, but yeah, so just to, to try to wrap this up a little bit, um, we there is a serious lack of planning that is going on generally speaking, uh, but more specifically speaking, um, with this, like, the number of times, and it's interesting, even when you're looking at this particular scandal, the number of scandals that exist within the way FEMA gives out contracts proves that there is just, that in a time of crisis, we just give money to random things. That there needs to be a plan of how to and who to fund and help in these scenarios when things go wrong. And clearly, that trying to use the private market to get these things out there is is a is is a very fraught, shall we say, issue. You know, like say all the bad things you can say about FEMA in themselves being a disaster relief effort, and how much they're you know how much they are sort of being you know attacked in some ways within the Trump administration. Um, but th- the idea that the money is not going to end up in the hands of uh, you know, two guys from Montana, uh, and that at least if it's FEMA, the government can can then review how money was spent. Versus you, we, you don't even get to audit us, is is incredibly important. And as disasters become more and more and more and more common, which they will, uh, segue to the, the middle second of the show. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> uh, the I, how we respond to them is going to become important. And if the and if the major ways that the major booming industry there doesn't get to be a there should not be at least a disaster capitalism bubble there should not be a bubble of these companies making millions and millions of dollars off responding to these disasters off the backs of the pa- t- taxpayers that's not how this should if that is how this is run we are in deep deep trouble uh, and so don't let pay attention to these 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 little things i think like again whitefish is a example of a much larger problem that exists within how we respond to disasters and how the market responds to disasters uh, you know our joke all the time is that your gdp increases if if you have a massive oil spill because you have to pay money to clean it up right. uh, so i guess so these are the problems uh, and and natural disasters are do seem on paper to be good for the economy. Yeah, <laughs> lately from like lately again, depending on the circumstances. But yeah. there's at least a certain a certain element of and the certain people who make the money are need to be people who are trying to actually do things that are better. You know, like it's just it's it's ludicrous and it's really easy to miss them. I think when there are scenarios like this, it's really easy to like this like three hundred million dollars when you're talking about billions of dollars of damages can get missed. Wow. Uh, but uh, I'm glad this one didn't. And I hope it some answer gets done. If you're in the states, you can call your you can call your congressman and try to convince them to cancel this contract because it's been canceled in 30 days. Uh, but please have a plan so Puerto Rico keeps getting power because that's what actually matters here. Yeah, and the um, 
I mean, the, the, there's a certain degree of, uh, you know, when the, when you have to do things in a hurry, sometimes you have to make bad decisions, right? It's like when if you call a plumber at three o'clock in the, you know, three o'clock in the morning on Christmas Day, you're going to pay, you know, 900% surcharge. Mm. And so sometimes some stuff like that is unavoidable. So simply the fact that, you know, a, a company might have been overbid for or whatnot to us in appearance. I mean, who knows whether or not that's actually fair. There's all these variables, you know, we're not, we're not in the place to make those decisions. The point, the, the major thing, aside from being on the, the lookout, because it is because of that very dynamic though it becomes a very easy way for people to skim from the government um is that the the big lesson here i think in addition to that is that we need to be planning to avoid these things in the future we should <laughs> be do. avoiding yes. disasters because when you when you make a plan in the in advance it's going to generally be cheaper than dealing with an emergency when it arises i mean that's uh, that stands true whether we're talking about this or whether we're talking about when i'm in the kitchen making whatever i'm making cupcakes mm -hmm. you know you, you have to anticipate problems that's sort of how everything works. Um, let's uh, let's take our uh, our music break here. We're going to be back after the short break. We've already heard a little bit uh, from Leora uh, Eisen, who's going to be joining us to talk about the new CBC Channel documentary, Into the Fire, uh, which I watched uh, in its entirety this morning. So I'm very happy to, to talk to you oh, about great. it. That was uh, that was over my coffee and porridge this morning. Uh, I, I did enjoy it as usual, and I think there's a lot of I, I learned a bunch of things that I wrote down that I'm going to ask you more about because I thought it was very interesting. So we'll be back right after the music break with your Leora Eisen and Into the Fire uh, right here on the Green Majority. Thanks for listening. You're listening to CIUT 89.5 FM uh, on our Toronto station. If you're listening on one of our community radio partners, thank you very much to you and the uh, radio partners as well. Also, our podcast listeners who are tuned in, and you can too at greenmajority.ca uh, through the podcast, either through iTunes or Sketcher or whatever your preferred podcast app is. Uh, we will be right back after this music break, which will be told what it is by Megan. All right, we are back. You're listening to The Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM. I'm in studio, as I promised before the music break, with Leora Eisen, who is here with Into the Fire, a new CBC Channel documentary, uh, largely about fire, self-explanatory self more or less, yeah? <laughs> kind of, but uh, it's, it's a lot more mysterious uh, than I thought it would be. So I wrote down, a, a, as I said before, I watched it in its entirety right before we came on the air today. And I, I wrote, made up a whole bunch of notes. Some of them were questions and some of them were just things that I wrote down because I thought they were neat. And one of the first things that I thought at the beginning was, uh, you know, there's that idea of, you know, the evolution of man, quote unquote, people, you know what I mean? But the, the evolution of man, and there's that drawing with the fish all the way up to the standing. And one of the sort of classical iconic images is our mastering of fire as, as far as human evolution and that sort of thing. And the very first thing I wrote down in my notes here today watching the documentary, with I was only about five minutes in was that we never mastered it. We just learned how to start it. And we're, we're, still, we're still trying to figure out how to control it and master it and understand it now. Today, that was really the first takeaway. That's really true. And, it, you know, I was uh, interested to learn that uh, the ancient Greeks thought fire was one of the four elements. Uh, so, you know, air, earth, water, fire. Um, and uh, if you remember your... Greek mythology from undergrad or whatever, uh, you know, it was uh, stolen uh, and given to uh, humankind. Uh, it was something only the gods had. So we've kind of had this, whoa, when it comes to fire, you know, this m mythical thing. But actually, I didn't even know what it was. And it's not a thing. It's not a substance. It's a process. It's a chemical reaction. It's science. And yes, we uh, thought maybe we'd mastered it. But obviously, looking around uh, the world today, whether uh, it's wildfire or whether it's uh, the number of fires that start in uh, your kitchen when you're cooking, uh, we have not only not mastered it, uh, we've developed a real fear of what is essentially a part of nature, a natural force that is part of the ecosystem. And uh, we've kind of screwed ourselves along the way. So one of the first main characters we meet in the in the documentary is Mike Flanagan, who's uh, an interesting character. He tells a little story about uh, getting involved with fire at the age of two, and uh, he he uh, explains a few things. But one of them, is, and it was good that this was sort of right out in front. It was in the first few minutes of the documentary. But he's talking about the the cyclical uh, positive feedback loop is how it's referred to uh, between uh, fires and climate change. And so of course, as you were saying, like there's not there's not a you know this degree equal that or this this molecule of CO2 equal that fire. You can't, that's not how this works No, and at you all. can't even uh, attribute a specific fire to climate change. Uh, and, you know, if you talk to people who don't buy into 
human-caused climate change, you know, they'll say, well, fires always existed. Well, yes, because it's a natural part of the ecosystem. However, uh, what the science is irrefutable when it comes to the frequency and intensity of wildfires, not just here, you know, not just Fort McMurray last year and BC this year. And look at in Ontario this year, uh, it was a very quiet wildfire season. It, it comes and goes. But all over the world, uh, Portugal, Spain, California, with so many people losing their lives, uh, there were fires in Greenland. Uh, they think there's going to be more fire activity in Sweden. Um, and it's it's undeniable that the war the world is warming up, mm -hmm. and when you have hot, dry weather, especially combined with wind, which climate change also impacts, um, a spark can start a raging inferno. Is what Mike Flanagan told me, and uh, that's what I saw when I went out to BC. It was just unbelievable. Like we stood there awestruck by the enormity. We were in front of uh, the biggest fire in BC in mid-July called the Elephant Hill Fire. And it literally doubled overnight to more than a thousand times the size of Stanley Park. And it was like, this is just unbelievable. What is making this happen? And part of it is climate change and part of it is we like to live in the forest. Uh, and also we like to put out every tiny little fire over the last several decades, you know, the mm -hmm. whole Smokey the Bear effect, which is, you know, be, you know, and you should be careful. But what's happened is if you don't let a little fire burn, then you get mega fires later on because you've got all these fuels in the forest, right? The leaves, the twigs, the branches, so on. Um, and small fires burn some of those off so that, you know, a big fire can't spread there. But if you don't let the small fires happen and, and, and you put them out, um, all those fuels accumulate and uh, you're in trouble. And it's it it wasn't sort of explicitly talked about this way in the film, but it reminded me a lot of something I've that you know throughout my schooling, both both the you know the the actual U of T and and just my sort of self directed learning and that sort of thing. This this constant recurring mistake that we humans uh, make just over and over and over and over and over again, which is the attempt to like sort of go into a system you don't understand, not acknowledge that it's a system, and then like assert, well, I want this, so I'm going to do that. And you just, but there's no understanding of like, no, 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 this is a system. Like you have to, you have to understand that when you do something here, that's going to make other things happen over there. And then something else blows up and you're like, oh my God, how could I have predicted? Well, you know, maybe <laughs> understand the thing that you're trying to impact first, but it's this sort of human arrogance and particularly the, 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 the develop, the develop, rapid development that sort of got, got in and just clear cut and, and manufactured the landscape in all these ways. And I think we're just now learning about all the damage that's done. Well, yeah. And I mean, you know, indigenous people in Canada, many, many uh, millennia ago, uh, were fire keepers. They were traditional managers of the land. And part of that meant fighting fire with fire. You know, you would do controlled burns uh, so that you wouldn't get more destructive fires. I mean, we've always had lightning. We've always had people start fires. Um, but there are things that you can do to kind of mitigate the risk. But now uh, it's it's getting to the point where no matter how many you know bombers and w helicopters and high tech and whatever you throw at a fire they're still uncontrollable um you know it's like uh spitting on something uh from the air when uh they're raging to the gr degree that they are and and so you know the scientists say you have to understand the science mm. of what's going on here because even scientists will admit you know, we still don't 100% understand how fires spread, why they go in a certain place. But what is also misunderstood is we think they're random. Mm. We think this chaos is random. And actually, um, fires need a pathway. They need to get to where they want to go. And as Mike Flanagan says, they're greedy. They want everything. But if you're making it easy for them, by building pathways, everything from letting fuels accumulate on the ground to planting, you know, a juniper tree in your garden right up against your house, which is highly flammable, you're making it easy for them. Mm. 
There was a really neat, uh, specifically about that that spreading part. There was a really neat part with uh, I don't recall the the fire professional, but they he found uh, in the film, but he he found someone online who had a, a, a dash cam, uh, an oil worker who had dash cam footage of the Alberta fire, uh, sort of as it was just spreading into a small community. And they they you can both see in the film his his footage, and then they also talk about it with the fire professional uh, as well. That uh, you know people like because I and it occurred to me too, but like you know how does a wildfire cross like a four lane highway, for instance? Like, do the do the are the flames really so dense from the trees on one side that they can push all the way across that empty land? And that's but that's not in fact what happens. And they show it in the film that it's uh, ember, essentially ember dust storms, millions of little particles. It, it was it was really something. Uh, uh, there's a guy named uh, Alan Westhaver, mm-hmm. who uh, was one of the co-creators of Canada's Fire Smart program, which is sort of the program with hints of how you can help protect uh, your house against wildfire and how to protect your community. Um, and he's been at it for years. And he was hired by the insurance industry to, to sort of be a fire detective and go to Fort McMurray uh, right after the fire. I mean, the ground was still smoldering. And look at houses that burnt down and houses that didn't. And some of them would literally be next door to each other. So it seems like a big mystery. Like, what is going on here? Um but what he discovered by watching Michelle, the oil worker, oil engineer's uh, footage on YouTube, uh, was that it was these little raisin-sized firebrands flying through the wind and landing in bone-dry front yards. So it wasn't this tsunami of flame, even though they were huge, crossing over. And I mean, th- that can happen in some cases, or uh, it can even be the intensity of the heat, uh, radiant uh, heat, they call it. But but in this case, and in many cases, it's these millions of embers sort of landing in your lo- yard. And next thing you know, it catches onto something and, and your house is on fire. And and one of the impacts of that as well is that we're then talking even about sort of home design. And, you know, we on the show, we've interviewed dozens of people about a variety of topics, you know, the need for uh, regulation around uh, building design and energy efficiency and and allowing for uh, renewable energy and, and alternative energy. But it seems like one of the things now as we're now... Very obviously, of course, it's hard to say, okay, as we said, it's you can't say this one was and that one wasn't. So there was no like, okay, that one wasn't climate change, but from now on, these are all climate change. But as we're starting to see the intensity rise, we're starting to be, it's it's visible, it's noticeable from either looking out your window or reading the newspapers that things are getting worse, that we now have to add extreme weather design in that as well. Uh, just the idea of all of this work and, and there's so much resistance to it like people don't want you know big parts of the Canadians don't want you know law, oh don't, I don't, don't regulate how, you know what kind of energy I need or blah 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 don't, I want to you know be myself but these are the consequences if we don't it's for it's not to take people's freedom away it's to keep them alive and keep their house from well, burning down you know you don't want it until there's a fire coming through your backyard and uh, I was really shocked to learn that 60% of Canadian communities Mm -hmm. are in what's called the wildland urban interface, which is kind of a fancy term for people who live or work on the edge of a forest or grassland. And we have grassland fires too in Canada. That if you add it up, those communities, 60% of our communities is like, would take up half the size of Alberta. That's a lot of area and people involved. And, and so, you know, it's, it, there are things people can do. We can look at thinning out some of our forests that are people are moving to the forest uh, and suburbs are spreading and if you're not going to restrict that if you're going to say yeah let's live in this beautiful place no problem then you have to be prepared to a take a risk and b try to mitigate that risk uh thinning out forests uh even you know the there the the fort mac fire uh uh it was suspected that it was started by an atv spark uh, or ATV engine, mm-hmm. um, you know, maybe you shouldn't be allowed to drive your ATV through uh, forests when it's hot and dry out. I mean, there are, are some pretty basic things. The other thing is that um, it's not just about hot, dry weather. I was fascinated to learn that it seems kind of counterintuitive or paradoxical that uh, uh, if you have a wet winter like BC did, followed by flooding in the spring, also related to climate change, you would think, well, that means we'll have, you know, it's wetter out, we'll have uh, less fire in the summer. Uh Uh-uh, because what happens is uh, the grass grows in more. And so then if it does, if you get this hot, dry 
period. Uh, uh, you've got an abundance of vegetation and boom, megafire. So, it, you know, nothing seems to make sense, uh, but by learning about the science, not just of climate change, uh, but of also fire suppression and, and human behavior and how we deal with fire, um, there's things communities need to do, but it takes political will, you know? It's one of those things, and, we, and we've talked about it endlessly, and I think we've actually talked to you about it before, Leora, but this idea of, like, you know, when it comes to, like, the dentist, people, if you go to the dentist, say, you know, the dentist says, I've got a cavity, you're like, great, because you don't know about dentistry, you know this person does, and more importantly, you know you don't know something. But I think when it comes to a lot of this other stuff, like, you know, to whether it be about climate change or these sort of more far out things, I think it's I think it's the difference to, between people knowing they don't know things and not knowing they don't know things. Because in this case of the dentist, you're like, well, I didn't know I had a molar, but I'm going to take your word for it because I know that I'm I know that teeth are important. I know you're an expert on teeth. I accept your credentials and I know I don't know something. So I, kn I know I need you and I know that I need your advice. But when we come over here to like some of these other areas where it's less clear that they don't know they don't know something you know then oh then you're just a crazy liberal or or you know arrogant scientists or all this stuff but there's really no difference there's really no difference between your doctor telling you you need a, ca a mole a cavity or uh, a, you know a filling and a fire scientist telling you that you know we should probably shouldn't have this type of building next to that type of of woodland and yet there's such a such a giant so it becomes political as opposed to simply an expert giving you advice well, and I, I think, I mean, I think we're lucky in Canada that we do have a lot of really great uh, fire uh, scientists and uh, in the U.S. in the current political climate when it comes to environmental science. I, I'm, I'm sure they're worried about it. But, um, um, yeah, people just take fire for granted or they're scared of it. I'm terrified of fire, not as much now, uh, but I was in an apartment building fire when I was 21. And I remember the alarm going off at three in the morning in my little bachelor apartment, half, you know, delirious, running down the stairs in the smoke. Nobody got injured, thank goodness. But I was terrified. Um, and so this was also a chance for me to overcome my own, you know, personal hang up in addition to learn about the science. Right. Uh, uh, my last uh, thing well, I want to talk about we're more or less at a time but I want to just mention it really quickly was at the end of the film we're sort of alluding it to it a little bit there but they're actually developing new techniques of the, to the point of not just sort of emergency response but just even basic level your local neighborhood firefighters are being retrained or have been retrained recently over the last little while because it turns out not only was there a better way that, that actually many common fire practices we were thinking of and things that we, we've seen in movies that we associate as general well that's what firefighters do turned out to not only not be the best thing but be actively terrible which was like smashing windows and stuff like that and that's because our houses have changed so it's not that uh, oh they were just ignorant 50 years ago or mm. 30 years ago it's that now we have these energy efficient houses which is great but that means they're airtight and so that means the fire behaves differently and if mm. the fire behaves differently you know, if you smash a window now, as um, uh, uh, a division chief from Ottawa Fire explained this to me, if you smash a window now and, and suddenly oxygen goes in, uh, phew, you know, it can blow up. Um, so they have to, um, and, or if you just pour masses of water instead of cooling the smoke first, mm -hmm. because it's changed. Also, our furniture is made with toxic stuff. Uh, it's oil-based. So your couch... Uh, can go up like I watched in a burn house uh, experiment four minutes what, is what all did it the took. guy call it? He said comfortable gasoline or comfortable something? Comfortable gasoline and he said our houses have become like easy bake ovens. Mm. I know this guy is wonderful. Peter McBride, he's a born clipster. Uh, <laughs> so as a television director, I loved him. But in what he and a number of, uh, I think it's 13 NATO countries, U.S. Homeland Security, uh, Canada's Defense Department, every single provincial fire service are working on this curriculum where they're trying to train firefighters using basic science. They have to understand the physics first um, because uh, the tr while they have great training, a lot of it's experiential. And they're sort of almost taking them back to the classroom and doing little science experiments and saying, this is why a backdraft happens. This is why a flashover happens. Um, and this is why we have to attack it differently. And this is how we're going to train you to attack it differently. I mean, I thought firefighting was same old, same old, as you said. You know, you've seen it in 
Hollywood, you know, Towering Inferno or whatever. Mm-hmm. And they it's break not, the window, spray the water. No, and it's kind go. of cool that Canada's actually at the forefront of, of this new training. Mm-hmm. Uh, so um, that's something to feel good about because it's not all bad news when it comes to fire. All right. Well, it's always a pleasure to have you in the studio, Leroy. I hope we can see you again uh, very soon. Uh, the documentary is called Into the Fire, and that's on November the 5th at 8 p.m. Uh, on, CBC uh, on CBC and online. And uh, we'll have links to that. You can check it out, and uh, I'm sure we'll see you again soon, Leroy. I'm sure we will. Thanks so much. All right. T- Take uh, care. Thank you, Leroy Eisen, uh, who's uh, with CBC Documentary Channel, producer, uh, di- writer, and director of Into the Fire. We're going to go to our second and sorry, and music it's, it's Nature of Things, uh, the yes, science show, and not Documentary Channel, because they're two different things. Oh, I apologize. Thank no you very problem. much. <laughs> All right. So we're going to go we're going to go to our music break now. Uh Megan is here to introduce our second and final music break. All right. Thank you. We are back into the final 15 minutes here on the Green Majority. You're listening to Green Majority on CIUT 89.5 FM or our wonderful and very appreciated community radio partners across Canada and internationally as well. Uh in addition to our very appreciated equally. Everyone is appreciated equally. So mm. Uh, are equally appreciated podcast listeners who are listening via iTunes or, or some other podcasting device, which you can be found at greenmajority.ca. Uh, not as much recently because we're we're in the middle of trying to make some uh, changes, but uh, occasionally and hopefully again and soon in the future, uh, this will be the only way the podcast that is to receive a bonus show, which we will hopefully get back to doing at some point, and also gets a fun little pre message from me, but is otherwise uh, largely the same. That is true. Uh, it's also the only the only show that is really weirdly popular in Nottingham. <laughs> uh, which uh, we had a fun little experiment. Uh, Dude, what was the thing? What's the second most? We I asked you about this. Uh, the second most out to the oh oh the the really small uh, the the small country. The second largest small town. That yes, that was in a, well Nottingham is not that small of a town. Um, but it, <laughs> carry on. The the point I, why I was making that point to listeners is that we got a, a large boost of about two thousand people from Nottingham listened to our show over this one week and then I have stopped again. Do you think so, it's possible that it was one person two thousand times? No, because then they, they were track it differently. This is a mystery for me. So if anyone can answer this mystery, please help. Um, but what's not a mystery to me is how little money that the oil companies are paying us in Canada, uh, which is the best segue I could come up with from that ridiculous side fact. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and you teased at the beginning that there's, the reason why we know this is kind of ironic. And, and so I'll start with that, which is that uh, The Guardian has uh, you, it reported this about, because they use a new extractive sector ba- database launched in June 2017, which is interesting was a law passed by Stephen Harper that required oil, gas, and mining companies in Canada to disclose the first-time payments that they make to governments around the world. And, and, so, and, and so the reason, what's interesting is why that was created uh, is it was part of a, it was part of a uh, corporate transparency effort uh, that was meant to actually help Canadian mining companies find out if they were being uh, subject to different cost prices because of corruption in smaller nations. The idea here was like every mining company would release uh, all these other companies would release how much money they had to pay. And so if a small uh, if a small nation uh, a smaller nation that was sort of you know was a little more corrupt and sort of charged one way more than another less, they could point it and to be like, look, this is bad. Uh, and so that's why this started. And mining, Canadian mining companies are really for it. Canadian oil companies are less for it, as for reasons that will become clear very quickly. And I just, and I want to, I don't want to get on a segue here, yeah. Stephen, but I just for the, I think it's important to just acknowledge uh, that we're aware, and we'll talk about on another occasion the, the reciprocal relationship between these mining, Canadian mining companies and the corruption that they're theoretically com- complaining about. I just want to acknowledge that. Well, well, they'd be the one benefiting. Yeah, yeah. But we won't. We're not going down that pathway yeah. today. But I just wanted to acknowledge that. Yeah. The, like, let, let's not pretend that this whole the story has anything to do with how good mining companies are. Uh, what it has to do, with, but the um, what is interesting here is so is that so basically a publish what you pay uh, effort came through, and uh, and what it was set up for. So here's the quote. So this is a quote from uh, from Keith Stewart, actually, friend of the show. Uh, so publish what you pay was set up to help fight corruption in the developing world, but ironically, this data reveals that it's Canada who's getting the short end of the stick when it comes to the public's share of oil revenue, uh, says Stewart. Uh, continues on saying the, the Trudeau government should be demanding that oil companies pay at least as much as as tax here as they do abroad, and that and use that money to fund a transition to green energy. And so what he's referring to is the fact that this database that was created as a way to show corruption actually has shown that. Canada taxes its oil companies at a fraction of the rate 
uh, that they are being taxed abroad. The same companies. Let's be clear. Oh yeah, the same this companies. Isn't, this isn't yeah. uh, this isn't apples here to apples there. These are the same apples. Yeah. So companies like Chevron Canada paid almost three times as much uh, to Nigeria and almost seven times as much into Indonesia as it did Canadian and provincial as it did Canadian provincial and municipal governments. Uh, and what's what's what we're about this is that Chevron used to run its Nigeria Indonesian Nigeria and Indonesian projects out of the United States, but after allegations that they evaded billions in taxes, they moved their they moved themselves to Canada. Uh, which I guess just allowed them to, instead of evading taxes, just not pay them is right. the answer. And Why evade them when you can just, you know, have someone not have a charge you them in the first place? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so, and so, this is just yet another example of Canada not the, the oil companies will never stop talking about how much they give back to Canada, how much their revenues are, you know, are are, are propping up parts of provincial governments, and in some sense, you know, in Alberta, they are very reliant on 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 oil on oil oil royalties, despite the fact that they're clearly still not taxing them that well. And and all of these sort of things, and so what's interesting here is it's an example of the sort of going. You'll hear oil companies constantly talk about how overregulated they are here, how over how much money that they have to pay, and all this sort of stuff. They complain, 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 and then something will come out like this, and it's like, oh, actually, this is like the easiest place to be to be in. Like it's it's it, when you compare some of these things, it's ridiculous. Like the amount that Canadian the Canadian Canada is not getting from these oil companies is huge. It's in the billions of dollars. And and then and on top of that, it says and, and it's like this is the this is the fun thing is that on top of the 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 fun fact that we are just not taxing them a lot of money, we're also still subsidizing them three point three billion dollars a year, despite having and, and, this, and this is despite the Trudeau government and actually the Harper government had originally done it, uh, had promised us to slowly phase out these uh, these these productions uh, or these sorry these uh, subsidies and. That process. There's another. If you check out the website, there's a whole other article from National Observer about uh, how just recently they moved one of these conversations about this phase out into uh, well, out of the public eye and into in, and into the sort of private se- in, into a privacy. So there's a so they couldn't actually report on what's going on. And so the pro- so while we are having this conversation about how we're not getting enough money from from these oil companies or how they're not paying their fair share. And while we then have this conversation about how we're giving the money still, despite the fact that we said we'd slowly, we, we'd actually phase that out, the conversations about how to phase that out are being held in private, uh, and and so the public can't even know how close we are or if we're ever going to. Yeah. And so all of these things just point to this ongoing question of why are we letting this happen? <laughs> when like, and, and the answer seems, you know, the answer very likely is. Um, you know, we're just not getting enough. That the oil company is has a lot of people who lobby the government and therefore get their way, um, and that Alberta is in somewhat on the hook for oil revenues in a, in a very large way, uh, and so they're also quite willing to to sort of look the other way. One of my random ideas I want to throw. I didn't just think of this now. This is one of those things that just sort of floats in my head all the time, Stefan. But uh, one of those things was like you know it, I think a lot about um, lobbying and the fact that. Uh, many of these companies have near unfettered access to uh, politicians and decision makers. So even if even if these policy makers have the best of intentions, when you have someone coming to you and meeting you two, three days a week, uh, you know, giving putting all this information in front of you that looks, you know, it's on fancy glossy spreadsheets and stuff, you know, about you know, revenue. This is the payback to the government, and you know, this is how many jobs we're going to create, and blah blah blah. And then once every six months, you read an email from one of your constituents. Well, it's even the best intentioned person is going to be biased. That's that that's not that doesn't in, that doesn't mean it's an intentional bias. Bias is independent of intention, right? And often, in fact, most bias is independent of intention. And, uh, and you know, I think there's a lot of, like, really interesting things we could do. And I, I'm not saying this would necessarily be easy, but it's uh, just I like putting policy out the ideas out there for people to think about uh, is the idea that uh, what if uh, there are two ways you could do this and they wouldn't necessarily have to be combined. One of them would be uh, is that any meeting between any public official and any private uh, interest of any kind is videotaped and on YouTube by law in the same way that we have like cameras in the House of Commons and stuff like that. And if nobody watches it, but it's part of the public record and that's available, this should all be happening. If they're if they're not doing things, if they're doing things that are in our interest or if they're just providing information, which is how it's always phrased, well, we're just providing expert information for the government to make the best decision. Great. Well, maybe the voters should have that information too, right? Hmm. Hmm. Think about it. The other one is that uh, is equal time. 
Uh, for every hour they meet with uh, an oil executive, they have to meet with an hour of somebody from an opposing viewpoint. Because we want to be fair, right? Well, they can, and they can have qualifications on that. They can say it doesn't have to be a random person. They could see they could have a designated, you know, team of people who represent civil society with regards to environmental concerns, or or forget the forget the activist groups, or forget the environmental organizations. Just make them climate scientists. But equal time, uh, either of those ideas or both. But the the idea that the the day that I will accept an argument from an oil company that they really have our best interests in mind is the day that they actually produce a uh, all of this data and numbers about jobs and benefits and whatever, including the uh, uh, subsidies they get, including all the tax breaks they get, and including the cost of climate change from uh, from them continuing to operate. And once all those costs get added into that and they show us that math and it still looks good, I'm willing to have a conversation. I'm not ideologically opposed. Um, the problem is that that everybody knows, including them most of all, that it's nonsense once you include those numbers, which is why they always fight to have them prevented from being entered into documentation about rules and policy and about uh, environmental assessments. Well, we don't want to look at downstream effects and all that stuff because they know what the math is when they when you actually do that, and they don't want anyone to know. Yeah, the, the like that's like sort of goes back to the the theme that we've had last couple of weeks, which is a sort of question of of what. Of 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 who and what and how change happens, uh, and who controls this change, and who has the ability to provide have recourse when when things are not well, you know, like 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 Puerto, how Puerto Rico has real no recourse, or like how the the forest fires in California were could be largely ignored by Trump because they're already going to vote Democrat. Um, you know, these are these are questions that that need that desperately need answers. Um, you know, even with, you know, today, uh, not to get in, I don't have any context on the, on, on the larger story here or the, the existence of it, but I, the you know, Catalan today declared independence from Spain, which everyone basically understands is going to mean Spain is going to quote, quote, invade this, this new place. And, and, and not all, the first time, if you're aware at all of history right. of Spain. Yeah. But, anyway. um, but all of these, <laughs> like all of these are examples of, of, of people who are, who are, who are not who feel like they have no recourse, right? Who, who are, and, and in many ways don't have any recourse. You know, the the people of Puerto Rico do not get to change the government uh, that that controls them, and and the more and more and more that you sort of you build in this belief that uh, that that people do not have the ability to to affect the change in their lives to to better their lives, the the more and more difficult you're going to get to have them continue buying into the system that you're creating you know it's a it's a self-defeating pro uh, uh experience to consistently disenfranchise people and then ask why they're not voting or why they're not why they're not participating in in the, in the game that you've rigged you know ev no one's going to play the game that they know they can't win and if all of society as all of society becomes uh i would say uh you know harder and harder to to feel like you can influence change then then how you respond gets 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 blurred uh you know three i i, I think this is my this is a interesting little fact because is that about three hundred thousand people are expected to move from puerto rico uh onto the u.s mainland and never return because of this because of this and all of them are suddenly going to get to vote at some point well they will vote immediately <laughs> they're they're american citizens they're all going to show up they're going to end up in likely largely florida which means that you, are, you now currently have 300,000 people. 300,000 extra Demo Democrats voting well, in, in cool. Florida. That could be interesting. Well, that's the thing, right? And, and like this is, and this is, you know, and that's, if that's the only recourse you have, uh, it, it, like that's a sad state, but still at least it means like, you know, it, it's, a, it's a, it leads me to this constant question of, I don't know what, where, where we're going. We're not, we're currently not giving a good enough vision to the people in the, the world of where we're headed for them to buy into the system we have. And so someone's got to give a better vision or else, you know, or else people are going to start rejecting the entire idea of society, which, you know, some people have already. But I think there's like a, there's a, there's a distinct concern I would have if I were the, those in power. Well, to borrow lyrics from three different songs, Stefan, uh, power is never seated. It's always taken. And you got to fight for your right to party. So fight the power. There we go. That's it for this week. <laughs> Listening to The Green Majority, check out greenmajority.ca for all the show notes and information about us. Check out some climate tune, uh, cartoons while you're at it. I haven't mentioned that in a while. Some fun cartoons we interrupt there, too. Everything is available on the website at greenmajority.ca. Other than that, have a good green week, folks, and we'll see you all real soon.